platforms uh please follow us on social media instagram and twitter our handle is at cult film comp c-u-l-t-f-i-l-m-c-o-n-p and we are a featured podcast on the blind knowledge creative collective over at www.blindknowledge.com which is a great website to check out web webcast podcast videocast from around the world from a host of very talented creators from all walks of life that bring you interesting and unique uh, material in a very entertaining and informative fashion. So check out all the fine creators over at Blind Knowledge. We are also a featured podcast on Newsly. Newsly is an audio web for iOS and Android that captures the latest trending articles based on topics that you choose to follow and then reads them to you in a natural human voice. Check out Newsly for free today at www.newsly.me. And please use the promo code C-O-L-T-F-1-L-M. That's cult film, drop the I, pop in a one, and get a month free of Newsly's premium service courtesy of us. Now that I've got that all out of the way, I am very pleased to introduce my guest for The Zero Effect, Josh Bell who is a film critic, freelance writer, and co-host of the Awesome Movie Year podcast at Awesome Movie Pod. Uh, Josh, welcome to the Cult Film Companion podcast. So glad to have you here. So great to be here. I'm excited to talk about this movie. And uh, please tell us a little bit about your um, background as a film critic and writer and a little bit about the Awesome Movie Year podcast. Yeah, I have been a uh, film critic for 20 plus years, amazingly. <laughs> so in uh, in a variety of uh, outlets and avenues uh, for many years at Las Vegas Weekly here in Las Vegas, where I live. And these days at a whole bunch of different places, including Crooked Marquee, CBR, uh, Inverse and The Inlander, et cetera, et cetera. So I try to collate all that stuff on my social media if you follow me at Signal Bleed on Twitter and on Letterboxd or at Josh Bell Hates Everything on Facebook. And Awesome Movie Year is the podcast that I co-host with comedian Jason Harris. And in each season, we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which, as we say, is every year. And we range all across film history. We've talked about films from as early as 1953, and our current season is covering the films of 2012. So each episode, we take a look at a different movie from that year in a variety of categories that we have, including things like the box office champion, the best picture winner, our personal picks, cult classics, etc. So that you can find uh, wherever you listen to podcasts and at awesomemovieyear.com. Awesome Movie Pod, as you said, on Twitter, and uh, Awesome Movie Year on Facebook and Instagram. Have you guys tackled 1998 yet? We have not. We've talked about a lot of stuff from the 90s because that's kind of the formative decade for Jason and myself as uh, film lovers, and Jason especially is a big 90s fan. I think we've done four different seasons on years from the 90s, but this is not one of the years that we've covered. Okay, so so the, the, the fair to say that this movie, Zero Effect, is, is not one that you've covered on the show yet. No, no, we have not. Although this is a potential, obviously, uh, cult classic pick if we ever do a season on 1998. But no, I, I saw this movie when it was out in theaters and had not seen it since. And it was exciting to revisit it. Real, I, I, well, then I am really interested let's just start with a little bit of, of backstory about the movie and then I, I i always like to get someone's background their introduction to a movie so it's fascinating to me that you actually got to see this in the theaters because this was not a movie that got seen by a lot of people in theaters uh but it seems to be kind of a critical darling like the people that did see it in theaters kind of loved it and um i can see why we are talking about the zero effect to my knowledge, um, 
the only feature film by writer and director Jake Kasdan, uh, who is uh, Hollywood. Um, nope, I am wrong. He's directed a whole bunch of movies. I, I take that back. Um, um, but this was his first movie uh, that he wrote and directed. He is the son of uh, Lawrence Kasdan, who, if that name doesn't ring a bell, I can almost guarantee you that you've seen a Lawrence something that Lawrence Kasdan's been um, involved with. Uh, most notably, I would say Empire Strikes Back is is him, if I'm not mistaken, right? Yeah, he's. I believe he's the co-writer on that, and he's had a long association with the Star Wars franchise and came back uh, to work on Solo, I think, and um, maybe one of the other reboot movies as well. So, um, yeah, I think you're right about that. Yeah, he's. Um, he also co-wrote uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know, the, the, the what kicked off the Indiana Jones movie. Um, the Big Chill, which I have not seen, but uh, due to long car rides with my parents, I know that soundtrack inside and out. Um, one of my favorite movies from um, the elder Kasdan is uh, a movie called Body Heat um, that maybe I will cover someday on that from uh, 1981. But we're talking about um, Jake Kasdan here. And uh, so... The Zero Effect is start. We, we we got a great cast here. We have Bill Pullman and probably one of my maybe not my favorite roles from him, but probably his funnest role. I I love Daryl Zero, the world's most private detective, and his poor poor assistant slash handler uh, Steve, played by Ben Stiller. Who, who, if you like an odd couple kind of movie, these two are the ultimate odd couple, so to speak. They they kind of need each other, just like any odd couple does. That they balance each other out in, in ways that only they could. And um, this is just one of the many cases of Daryl Zero. And um, I had mentioned to you before I started recording. This is this is high on my list of movies that um, I, I wish had either a sequel, a prequel, or um, a, a TV series uh, come from it. Uh, I think that these characters and obviously the world of, of, of detectives has been the source of of. Of, of popular media since, gosh, media was probably invented. I mean, Sherlock Holmes is one of the most interesting and uh, well-renowned characters from from uh, culture. And uh, you know, you know, we love. Who doesn't love a good mystery? And it kind of it, it seems to me though, like a lot of um, fads in Hollywood. Uh, they kind of come in and out of uh, uh, out of uh, popularity, and I think now with the knives out and glass onion, uh, I think the smart, really a real smart, intelligent, tightly uh, scripted, um, well acted and directed mystery movie is um, is once again in kind of good favor, and I, I think that. Um, Zero Effect was uh, kind of, uh, I, I'm going to say, I'm going to ask you because you saw this in theaters. Did you, when you went to see this in theaters, were you going as a critic or just as, as an audience member? No, this is in 1998. I was still either in high school or about to start uh, starting college, depending on, I don't know what month this was. So anyway, I, I was, uh, yeah, in January 1998, I was still in high school. So okay. Uh, yeah, so I was not a critic at the time, but I just went to see it. I, I, you're, I realized that it was a movie that not a lot of people saw, but it wasn't like I was some cool hipster cinephile necessarily then. I mean, I liked movies and I made efforts to seek out interesting movies, but I feel like this wasn't something that required a lot of digging necessarily. It was 
a movie starring Ben Stiller, who I'm sure I had seen in some funny movies at the time and was intrigued to see his next work. And so I went to see it in theaters. I mean, I don't remember all the particulars exactly, but I don't recall it being something where I had to, you know, drive a long distance to find a theater playing it or anything like that. I think I just went to my multiplex that I would have gone to here in town and saw this as whatever the new release was that week that I was intrigued to see. And I really liked it at the time. And it was always something that I think I had in mind, especially as time went on. And like you said, it, it became more of a cult thing. It wasn't super well known. And Ben Stiller didn't really go in the direction of these kinds of movies, nor did Bill Pullman, and especially not Jake Kasdan, who this, as his debut, it seemed such a, a promising debut for a certain kind of film. And then instead he went in this very mainstream, uh, broad comedy, action comedy kind of direction, which has done well for him. And it makes sense that he wouldn't keep trying to make movies like the one that failed, but it's slightly disappointing if you're thinking of him as a potential auteur. So yeah, I don't I don't think at the time I was like, wow, uh, I got the chance to see Zero Effect. It was just like, yeah, that was a fun movie. I really liked it. And then over time, I realized how it had been forgotten. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's very interesting to me that you just brought up the trajectory of 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 the of Mr. Kasdan's career going from something like this to um, like Jumanji, you know, uh, one of those big blockbuster movies, very kind of similar to what his father did, um, because I think Body Heat, which came out in 81, was was uh, the elder Kasdan's first movie, didn't get a lot of recognition. It's a very uh, neo-noir um, mystery. Are you familiar at all with Body Heat? With um, Oh, gosh. Drawing a blank here. Um I haven't seen it. I mean, I'm familiar with its existence and I think it's gotten more of a reputation over time. Um, I, I think especially in this current resurgence of interest in erotic thrillers from the 80s and 90s, it seems like um, that's one that's often in the conversation. And I'd be curious to see it, but I haven't seen it. Right. And um so it stars William Hurt and a, a very young Kathleen Turner and uh, was inspired by uh, the classic film noir, uh, Double Indemnity. Uh, and um, like you said, you know, Body Heat didn't really uh, didn't, you know, it was a very well received movie, but it didn't blow up. And then, of course, uh, it kind of gets overshadowed when you direct which which i amongst many people would probably credit as being the best star wars movie uh the empire strikes back and of course co-writing raiders of the lost ark and then continuing um to do some some really fantastic work uh, throughout you know not only star wars but just you know throughout film in general it's kind of um one of those things where you kind of get your opportunity to kind of make a passion project, which I, I get the feeling was kind of the, which was what Lawrence was doing with body heat. Um, Jacob kind of did with zero effect because um, it, this is a very, very funny, dark movie. Um, the, the lead character is not an easy one to really like because he is so eccentric. Um, he also has a, a clear uh, love, an affinity for methamphetamines, uh, which kind of uh, help him with his uh, his super sleuth skills. But you know, it didn't it didn't really uh, it didn't blow up. Uh, unfortunately, uh, the budget for this movie was about five million dollars grossed about two million dollars and um you know nowadays that's the kind of thing that they budget in for catering for movies you know some of these huge movies at you know um you know you you, you got to put aside a couple million just for just to keep the the, the casting crew fed so it's kind of amazing to me that you get a movie like this. Um, and 
you know, like you said, it was it was by a major film company. So it, uh, unlike some of the movies that I that I cover here on the show, which were strictly art house or grindhouse movies or stuff that you kind of had to see at a, at an independent theater, this was when it got a release in um, January of 1998, January 30th, 1998, um, you know, it was put out there. It was put out by Castle Rock and Columbia Pictures. So, you know, we're talking some some pretty big names out there as far as uh, production and distribution. But for whatever reason, and I guess you, you would you would know better than I as, as a film critic, as a film historian, I know that historically January is kind of a, a, a almost seen as a dumping ground. I don't know how much of that really matters nowadays with streaming and all that, the way that movies are distributed. But like back in the day, it kind of seemed like uh, January was like the death nail um, that you had the big summer blockbusters. And then you, of course you've had like the, the Christmas season movies and, you know, horror movies kind of took, the fall in and then, you know, but February, January and February were kind of like dumping grounds because, you know, that was either just like the cutoff for awards was coming up and also people weren't going to the theaters as much. Is that, is that historically accurate or am I, you know, making stuff up? No, that that's definitely right. And I think you're also right that it's less the case now where there's so much stuff released to streaming or even movies that get released in theaters are available to stream very quickly afterwards. But it's still a bit the case now. And I think certainly in the 90s and 2000s and going back to the 80s, I think probably from the beginning of the blockbuster era in the late 70s through just a few years ago, that was absolutely the case. And so I don't know the specific background of this film, if it was something that the studio was dissatisfied with um, or how the production went. But yeah, typically January is a time when studios would have dumped movies that either they did not have the confidence in uh, to make money, or maybe they were just movies that had... uh, sort of throwaway audiences. I mean, one thing that happens a lot in that January throwaway period is there are a lot of like lower budget horror movies, which can be really entertaining to watch. But as as it comes right after that award season, like you were saying at the end of the year, it's certainly not a prestige um, time period to be releasing your movie. So yeah, I mean, I think this is probably a movie that for whatever reason the studio looked at and decided maybe there were some test screenings or something like that that didn't go very well. And they might've decided, hey, this isn't a movie that's gonna reach a wide audience and let's just throw it out there in January. And that I'm sure contributed at least in part to it's not making a lot of money. Maybe it didn't get a lot of promotion. I, I don't really know, but that, that sounds about right. And even now it seems like this is a movie that isn't getting you know, a lot of love or whatever. I watched a DVD of this and I don't know if you have that or have uh, rented it or whatever, but it was a Warner Archive DVD, which is their like manufacturer on demand DVD release that they um, put out. Or I don't know if it's Warner Archive, but one of those labels where it's uh, it's not even released uh, except uh, like made to order or whatever, because there's not enough of an audience to pick it up. So I guess it wouldn't be Warner because this is a Columbia Pictures release, but one of those. Yeah, it's very. I I do own the the DVD. It's very bare bones. I believe it, it comes with a commentary, but it, it's not something. And I am a collector of of physical media. And one of the things that I look for are you know a, a nice clean restoration that you know Kino Lorber Criterion does when they when they release something and uh, you know. Uh, you know, it's the zero effect is available to rent. I do believe um, I picked up the DVD, but it's not something. Yeah, um, it's not something that gets a really prestigious kind of release. And my theory, and I, I, this is a theory that I share for a lot of um, cult movies in general, is that if I was working in the marketing department of a, a movie company or a movie distributor. 
working in the marketing department, um, I, I think that marketing something like a Star Wars movie or the latest comic book movie is, is I don't want to say it's easy, but it's easier to market something like that than it would be something like The Zero Effect. Something like Star Wars and um, the Marvel, MCU, or Batman, or all these intellectual properties, the Lord of the Rings, and Harry Potter, and on and on and on. They have this built-in audience already. So you're almost kind of guaranteed at least some sort of, um, you know, money back on the money that you invested in the movie. Uh, but if I had to cut a trailer for something like the Zero Effect, I you know, and I've and I've watched the trailer for it. You know, it, it, it's not as easy to sum up what kind of a movie it is because some of the humor is kind of goofy. Some of the humor is very smartly written. There's some physical humor. Obviously, you get you got someone like Ben Stiller who's capable of doing all sorts of different kind of of humor and um you know in the 90s i think that ben stiller was was making some uh, i don't want to judge but i'll say riskier um career moves doing something like this uh doing something like permanent midnight in which he plays a heroin addict based on a true story about one of the writers from alf and then kind of really um, becoming a, a, an A-list movie star with, you know, there's something, there's, uh, there's something about Mary, you know, that's kind of what really put him on the map. Uh, he'd obviously been around for years before that, but that was, that really kind of, um, really blew up his career. Um, he seems to be playing it, and I don't want to say safer, um, because he, he will do a movie like Tropic Thunder, which, you know, is still getting talked about today, be, mostly because of Robert Downey Jr., but he kind of plays it a little bit safer, um, and um, th- this movie isn't very safe, because if, if you just watch the trailer, it seems to be... Um, it seems to be a little bit goofier than what this actual movie is is not to say that there aren't goofy aspects to this movie and i don't mean goofy in a derogatory and negative sense but um does any you know anything that i just say kind of resonate with you as far as this movie and the you know the people involved yeah i mean i haven't watched the trailer i it's possible i saw the trailer back in the 90s before seeing the movie but i i didn't rewatch it but it, it doesn't surprise me that this would be a tough movie to market and not necessarily because the studio is deliberately trying to bury it or whatever. Like you say, it is sort of an odd mix of tones. It's not a broad comedy that people might have expected from Ben Stiller in this era. It's not just a straightforward like mystery thriller, though. It's got a lot of dry humor. It's got a lot of dark humor, but it's not necessarily a laugh out loud movie. So I could see marketing people watching this movie and thinking, how do we convey the unique qualities of this movie to the people who will want to see it? So, I mean... It's, it almost is one of those movies that's destined for more of a cult audience because it's hard to get a handle on what it is without just watching the whole movie and you have to be on its wavelength in order to really enjoy it. Um, I agree with you, though, that this is maybe a movie before its time in a way and that things like the Ryan Johnson, Benoit Blanc movies and uh, and Poker Face, his TV series, uh, as well as I thought a lot about Confess Fletch, which was one of my favorite movies from last year, um, are maybe more in the in in vogue right now. And that if this movie or this kind of movie came out right now, it would have a an easier time finding an audience and finding critical acclaim. Um, but it, it doesn't surprise me that a major movie studio struggled to get the word out about this movie to the the right audience. And, you know, I, I, I want to speculate and I'm going to I'm speculating on the point of uh, uh, with Hollywood and, and not so much on uh, aspects of nepotism, although aspects of nepotism might come up. But you got the, the son of a famous movie director uh, kind of fresh out of college and he's got a script. He's got an idea. Um, 
you, you know, a, a production company or a studio might be a little bit more likely to get on board with something like the zero effect. And I, and I don't mean that in any sort of way to dissuade your anyone's opinion of the zero effect. I'm just saying like what you were just talking about with the marketing department and the studios going through test screenings and stuff. This is a very unique movie and you do need to be on the right wavelength with it. I don't, I don't think that I particularly, I, I think I saw this in the early 2000s and I wasn't thrilled about it. And then I, um, over the course of developing the show, the, you know, this is one of the movies that kept coming up on, on, you know, when I was doing research for other cult movies. And I was like, you know what, let, let me revisit it. And I think I got the DVD for like 10 bucks off of Amazon, uh, one of the best 10 bucks I've ever spent, because I can't tell you how many times I've rewatched this movie or shown like I'll have people over and um, it, it's if you kind of know the kind of audience, it's easy to to uh, to um, kind of uh, pick out a movie if you're only entertaining a couple people at your apartment and you can be like, OK, they're all kind of on the same wavelength as the kind of sense of humor that you kind of need to get into a movie like this. Then if you're trying to sell it to millions of people out there. And yeah, I think that, again, I've, I've seen this very often on the show, a victim of its time. Um, I don't think that 1998 was kind of this. This almost feels like a, a movie out of place. And it's almost like a good mystery movie. Like, you know, there are aspects of 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 technology and whatnot with, you know, um, it knives out and glass onion and everything. But at the heart of it, it's just a really good mystery. And that's what you get here. But I don't know that, again, with the marketing department, uh, the, the the trailer almost seems like what you're expecting would be a very light PG, PG-13 kind of comedy. And like I said, there's aspects of, of drug abuse and um, emotional abuse, some some pretty, you know, dark... Uh, relationships going on here. Uh, ben Stiller struggling with his fiance, um, struggling with his professional relationship with uh, Bill Pullman. Um, the aspects of the the mystery involve a, a father and a daughter, and you know it's there's so many there's so many different um, balls being juggled here that the, it, it's it's amazing that they all kind of get kept up in the air and, and, and rotating in such a way that, you know, this movie to me is just like a breeze to get through. Um, it's one of those, like a good, a good mystery to me is something that I can revisit and still will be picking up clues and, or would want to revisit to see what kind of things I missed first time around and other movies, you know, once I'm, once I'm, seen it i'm done with it and i have no kind of interest in seeing anymore or revisiting it anytime soon uh and i'm sure that you can relate to to something like that we all have movies that we can we can we we watch almost religiously you know like once a year something like that yeah i actually don't do that generally. I'm the kind of person who rarely rewatches any movie, no matter how much I like it, because I always feel like I'd rather spend my time watching a movie that I've never seen before. And so I tend to rewatch movies only for things like this. Like, hey, I'm going to record a podcast about this movie. I need to watch it again to uh, remember what I'm doing, or I have to write an article about it, or there's a, a new sequel or remake or reboot or something coming out that I might need to write about or talk about, and I'm going to refresh my memory about this previous movie. Um, so I don't necessarily do that, but I can see how this would be a movie that you would do that with. And I think you're right that mystery movies are often that kind of film where there's a lot of details that you might not pick up on or not understand the significance of the first time you watch it, that you could watch the movie again and appreciate better. Um, I, I do think that this is a movie where the mystery itself is intriguing, but it's not necessarily mind-blowing. I mean, to spoil it, 
it's it's sort of like the old uh, the Roger Ebert law of economy of characters. You know, once Kim Dickens' character shows up and uh, makes a significant impression on Daryl Zero, you have to think like, okay, she's clearly going to be a central figure in this mystery, and maybe every little detail of who she is and how she figures into it is not immediately clear, but I think it's less of like, uh, you know, sixth sense level twist and more of a satisfying like, okay, I'm really opening up this world and I'm deepening my understanding of these characters rather than like having my mind blown about the solution to this mystery. Right. And I think I think you can kind of divide mystery uh, novels and mystery, mystery movies into like uh, different categories where you have um, very, very interesting characters that um, that they're the main uh, focal point of the movie, um, seeing these characters and the way that they interact. And like you said, the actual mystery itself is nothing that's going to like blow your mind or leave you j- like jaw on the floor. And be like, I totally didn't see that coming. Like you said, it's it's easy if you've seen some of these kinds of movies. Like you said, once Kim Dickens comes in, you you can it's you can telegraph where it's going. Although this movie does take some very very clever turns, but I think that what really pulls this movie together are these interesting characters. The fact that we have this very eccentric, uh, brilliant, yet baffling kind of Daryl Zero character and the straight man um, played by Ben Stiller against, I guess, kind of playing against type, you would almost see Ben Stiller more as the the crazy kind of um, reclusive, drug-addicted the best private detective in the world. Um, but I, I kind of love this genius casting of Bill Pullman playing this um, very bizarre person that eats cans of tuna and plays terrible, terrible music, <laughs> terrible music that he thinks is incredible. But he, you know, despite all these essence you know, eccentricities that he has. He's a brilliant, brilliant detective. And um, yeah, it, it, and then you have the kind of mysteries where um, the characters kind of take um, a backseat to a very complex and intriguing mystery that kind of really takes a lot of turns and there's there's lots of red herrings and you don't really know exactly how everything's going to wrap up at the end um but what when you're what you're left with afterwards is wow that was like a brilliant mystery and i want to kind of go back and replay it but you couldn't name you know any of the special qualities or quirks about the characters um uh, does that make you know that i know it was kind of a an overthought speech, but um, kind of, do you see where I'm kind of coming from? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this isn't the usual suspects, you know, Mm. but, but this is a movie where the characters are really well drawn and you love spending time with them. And I think even the like suspect characters, you know, Kim Dickens character is very well drawn. And as you learn more about her, you really feel for her. And there's an emotional engagement with her as well as with Daryl Zero and, and with Steve Arlo, his, his assistant, the Ben Stiller character. So yeah, I, I think I think you're right. And some of those movies that are very, very plot heavy, the the kind of Agatha Christie plotting or whatever, that you don't feel as emotionally invested in the characters necessarily. And that's that's what you get out of this film. And I want to say also that I think you're right. Like one of the genius things about this movie is the sort of against type casting that you would assume if you described this movie and said that it starred Ben Stiller and Bill Pullman, you would naturally assume that Ben Stiller was playing Daryl Zero and Bill Pullman was playing Steve Arlo. And um, I I don't know how the casting process went, but uh, I love that Kasdan decided to flip the script on that. Um, And just to put someone like Bill Pullman in this movie at all, I think that if you describe this movie and said that Ben Stiller was one of the stars, you might expect that the other star would be like Will Ferrell or something. You know, you get Will Ferrell as Daryl Zero and it would be a much broader comedic performance. But because Pullman 
has this range to talk uh, to to do you know dramatic work and comedic work and so many different kinds of of roles. He really shines here and is allowed to stretch in a way as an actor that he doesn't always get to do. So I think that's a huge part of why this movie works. Right, and and I think sometimes you know sometimes that against uh, typecasting casting doesn't work for a movie but then you get something like this where i think bill Pullman. i i can't think of after watching this movie and watching it many times i can't think of anyone else playing um daryl zero other than uh bill pullman it, it very similarly to the i can't see anyone but daniel craig playing what's um what the, his character's name uh, ben benoit blanc yeah you know you know he and it re- kind of reminds me of when uh, Jeff Daniels was cast in Dumb and Dumber. I know that that was kind of a weird kind of. It wasn't. It wasn't typical. It wasn't like the typical kind of Jeff Daniels movie that you would expect him to do. Or similarly, back you know, back in nineteen eighty nine when Michael Keaton was cast as Batman. You know, people saw. Mr. Mom is going to be Batman now, or, you know, Beetlejuice is going to be Batman. And sometimes it just takes a a really sharp mind to go against what, you know, the the higher ups, the executives might be pushing. They might be pushing for someone else, you know, in the case of Batman. You know, they were put they the, Warner Brothers wasn't completely on board with Michael Keaton right at first. And, um, you know, I wondered that, you know, at when this movie was being produced at some point, I, I wouldn't surprise me if some executive had a, a had a conversation with them and they go, do you ever think about switching your two leads? You know, like like if like, what about Ben Stiller is Daryl Zero? Um, because it's such. I always see Bill Pullman isn't really well known for his comedic chops. Not to say that he doesn't have them, but I mean, it's quite apparent when you see a movie like this that he is such a gifted actor that he kind of embodies this this character. And you don't even like see Bill Pullman anymore. You see Daryl Zero. Um, this very self-absorbed, <laughs> narcissistic, egotistical kind of person um, with, um, you know, social, you know, social anxieties or just social complexities. And um, to see his his character deal with uh, kind of like a relationship with a with a woman is just so interesting. And, um, y- you know, th- the rest of the cast, we got a very. I don't think Ryan O'Neill was probably making a lot of movies in the nineties. He, I, I, you know, I think his his star had uh, kind of fallen, or you know, wasn't as bright as it was back in his heyday. Uh, but uh, you know, he it, it's it's such a well acted movie all the way around. You know, there's. Very different motivations for all the characters, what they're doing. You know, Ben Stiller is um, primarily shown as being very motivated by uh, money and the kind of lifestyle that, you know, he's been afforded uh, working with Daryl Zero. And um, you're almost uncertain to what keeps Daryl Zero. He almost seems to be a lot. He seems to be lost without a good mystery and that's kind of what you want in a lead uh thriller with with you when you want your lead investigator to be the kind of person that um is driven just by the sake of solving a mystery and 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 helping people even though he doesn't necessarily seem to like some of the people that he's helping you know right well and that's one of the the key plot points toward the end, right? That Ryan O'Neill's character is terrible. I mean, and we learn as the movie goes on just how terrible he is. He's not just 
uh, sort of ruthless capitalist or whatever, but he's a murderer, he's a rapist, and he's trying to hire people to cover that up for him. Um, and there's this big confrontation between Daryl Zero and Steve Arlo about the idea of helping people and who's on the right side or whatever. And and Steve Arlo has that great line about there's no good guys, there's no evil guys, it's just a bunch of guys. Um, which is a, a great description of sort of moral ambiguity. But um, yeah, you, you get the sense that Daryl Zero isn't motivated by altruism necessarily, mm-hmm. right? even though he thinks of himself as a good guy. But he's not necessarily, and even though he gets paid a lot of money, he's not necessarily motivated by money in the same way that Steve Arlo is with his nice house that you see and his his girlfriend slash fiance that he wants to provide for. You, I feel like Daryl Zero is like Sherlock Holmes or or even maybe like Benoit Blanc, like a lot of these classic detectives. He's motivated just by the idea of solving things, that he is just motivated by a challenge. He's motivated by the opportunity for him to figure something else out, figure something out and prove how he's smarter than everyone else. And that's the main reward for him. And, you know, over the course of this movie, he maybe experiences a bit of of an awakening in terms of empathy as he connects with uh, with Kim Dickens' character, like Sherlock Holmes maybe did over the course of some some of his mysteries. And I know this is supposedly inspired by a Sherlock Holmes mystery called The Scandal in Bohemia, which I have not read or or seen necessarily any adaptations of. But you can see how that archetype of the detective who is a little aloof, a little cold and analytical, but is then softened by his uh, connection romantically with someone is is being played out here in this film. Yeah, you know, I, I think you put it very succinctly. And yes, I also came across that um, that this was inspired by a Sherlock Holmes uh, novella, I believe it was. I think, I think it was a short story. Yeah. But um, it's not one that I'm familiar with. And obviously... You know, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. You know, we we lost years ago, but people are still writing Sherlock Holmes stories to this very day, and I think there's a reason for that. Um, I mean, hell, we we had two huge blockbuster Sherlock Holmes movies in the you know in the past decade, uh, helmed by Guy Ritchie and starring Robert Downey Jr. I like the fact that. Um, these detectives, and you can even throw Batman in there. You know, is the world's most uh, is supposed to be the world's greatest detective at, at, at times. Um, these sorts of of leads and are in, in these stories. There's something that they're they're so they're so smart and they're so observant and so just genuinely intelligent um, that. They kind of they lose some of the uh, the social graces or the um, the the acclimation to the rest of society that some of us get uh, because they're kind of they're almost on a different level mentally about how they see things. Yeah, and I mean, and that's the thing. I think in 1998, maybe this wasn't really talked about as much or depicted in films. But you watch this, and you have to wonder. Is Daryl Zero meant to be sort of on the autism spectrum somewhere? I feel like if you made this movie now, that might be more of a, a clear point. But but whether he is or he isn't, yeah, that, that is a long tradition going back to Sherlock Holmes of detectives who are like that, who, who lack those social graces, who uh, have difficulty fitting in with society, except when they have this mission and this mystery to solve. And we see that with Daryl Zero too, right? He can barely function uh, when he's at home on on meth and eating tuna out of cans and whatever. But when he's got a mystery to solve and he can adopt some other identity and maybe put on a disguise, suddenly he's confident and he's suave and he's able to move within society. And he even says in that narration that's part of his supposed like book, I guess, that he's writing about how to be a detective yes. or his, his techniques that that it's easy to blend in when you just imitate what other people do. And he clearly is able to do that, but only when he has a mission and a case to solve, because 
presumably if he just wanted to go out and about in society on any other day, he wouldn't be able to blend in in that same way because it doesn't have a purpose uh, from his perspective. So I, I absolutely that's something we see in in detective fiction to this day. Right. And I also had similar thoughts about the whole uh, autism spectrum kind of thing. And um, if anyone needs a friendly reminder, uh, people on the spectrum are going to be some of the most intelligent people you will ever come across. I, I've worked with people that have, um, you know, Asperger's and high functioning autism very, very intelligent people, extremely intelligent, far more intelligent than I am. But, you know, it's all about those uh, social interactions and, and the way that they um, process emotions and whatnot. The other thing that came to mind to me was, and it's interesting because I've seen this done with Sherlock Holmes about, um, I think the book was called The Last Sherlock Holmes story, the last Sherlock Holmes mystery. And it's towards the end of, of Holmes's career. And he's basically become a, a drug addict. And I think that similar to someone like Daryl Zero, who we see abusing methamphetamines, um, they need some sort of addiction in their life. And their main addiction is, isn't drugs. It's the mystery. It's the thrill of a mystery. And without that, without that um, addiction being fed, they kind of seek solace elsewhere um, and a kind of way to calm their brains down or in Daryl Zero's case, really accelerate his brain. You know, of all the things, you know, it made sense to me when I read this story about Sherlock Holmes being like addicted to heroin and, and opium and stuff. It's because he needed it to slow his brain down because he didn't have a mystery to solve. And he in these thoughts kept going wildly throughout his brain, but he needed something to subdue them and he sought them out in, in drugs. And um, so to me, that's just a very interesting kind of way to to see it. And I see that a lot with the character of Daryl Zeros, that he's he's addicted to I don't even think he likes necessarily solving these mysteries. He seems very kind of like, oh, I got to go meet a client or you have to go meet a client. And I had to go do this. But once he's in it, he's in it to win it. And that's a terrible pun, but I've already said it. So but I think that they need that in their life. Like that's that's what's filling that that hole that other people fill with um gambling or drugs or alcohol, whatever, you know, any sort of vice that they might have. Um, but yeah, I think that this movie was kind of a victim of its time. I, it, I you know, I was in high school. Um, I was uh, probably a junior when this came out. So, you know, but I don't remember this being like advertised on TV and, um, I was more so into like music at the time and uh, like real underground stuff. So like mainstream stuff was, I was too cool for that. You know, you kind of go through that, uh, those angsty teenage phases. Um, and you know, that's why it didn't really show up on my radar, um, necessarily. And then, like you said, it doesn't get talked about a lot. And I think that it's one of those things that the rest of, uh, Mr. Kasdan's career, has really overshadowed this movie because he's made blockbuster movies now. Right. And, and it's the same thing with um, when you bring up Ben Stiller's best roles, you know, this isn't probably, you know, uh, nine times out of 10, is this going to show up in someone's like top five, top 10 Ben Stiller roles? Probably not. Um, and it's not even because that they might not have seen the movie. It's just that, you know, they might have seen it and forgotten about it. And because it doesn't get that much exposure and you don't see it and there hasn't been a sequel or anything like that, um, you, you, you kind of had to look for it. Now, you said, you know, it was out there in the multiplex when you saw it, but. I think that it kind of came and went and it didn't have that lasting impression. And unfortunately, I, don't, I, I think that it kind of deserves more than that. It definitely got a lot of critical praise at the time. I'm looking through the reviews here. It did very, very well with critics, but just nobody, for whatever reason, the audience wasn't there. And I think that the majority of people 
then went to see this movie were probably critics and it was shown at some film festivals and it did quite, quite well in those kinds of environment environments. But um, the audience wasn't really there. Um, and like you said, I think that people that were expecting a goofy, silly Ben Stiller comedy in, in, in the same vein as something that he did with the Farrelly brothers uh, wasn't going to get that. And maybe some people had problems with Bill Pullman in, in a, uh, you know, a humorous type role when you're used to him being the president in Independence Day or being the, um, the, the, the saxophone player in Lost Highway with David Lynch or something like that. You know, the, those are kind of like the darker kind of roles that I more closely associate with Bill Pullman. Um, but for whatever reason, this movie really, really resonated with me. And I got to give the credit to the script and the direction because at for a feature um, film debut, I mean, this movie, it, it, it doesn't it doesn't come off. It doesn't have that stink of a first time uh, director that you sometimes get. Uh, you know, very often if you go through the, someone's filmography, you can kind of see where they kind of struggled at first to kind of find their voice and identity. And I don't think that's the case here. I think we very much get a, a very strong voice from um, Jake Kasdan with this movie because this is written and directed by him. And I'm just looking at some of the other movies and stuff that he worked on. And we're talking about uh, prior existing IPs that, you know, I'm sure he was involved in the writing or anything, but this was an original idea that he came up with. Um, and I don't think he fumbled the ball here. I think that the studio kind of fumbled the ball and we already went over with the kind of stuff that happens with studios and marketing and everything. Um, they just didn't know what to do with this um, movie. Yeah, I think um, one of the things you're saying that I think maybe contributes to why this is forgotten is because what Jake Kasdan went on to do is not only movies that were more successful, but that were these big, broad blockbuster kinds of movies or broad comedies or whatever. I think if he had gone on from this film to have a career like the Coen brothers or something like that, and make similar, you know, quirky, original, dark comedies or, or dramas that had gotten more attention, then I think people would have said, oh, let's take a look back at what he did earlier because we enjoyed this similar film that he made later in his career that got more attention. And I think this movie would have gotten more attention then from, from people later on, but because he went on to make these very different kinds of movies. I don't think anyone is watching the Jumanji movies and thinking, wow, this Jake Kasdan guy is such a brilliant auteur. Let's see what else he made. Um, or, yeah. or, or even if they are thinking like, wow, I really enjoyed those Jumanji movies. Maybe I'll watch some more movies by this director. This is not a kind of, the kind of movie that you'll love if you're a huge Jumanji fan per se. So, I mean, I think because it's an outlier in his filmography that for whatever reason, you know, he made this original film and it didn't do all that well. And then maybe he decided to shift gears or maybe he had to shift gears because the only things that he could get hired to do were these bigger projects from non-original ideas. But whatever the reason is, you know, it's it's such an outlier that, that people aren't having the motivation to revisit it per se. And I don't know why maybe given how successful he has been with these broader studio types of movies, why he hasn't as often gone back to something more original. I did see his movie from 2006 called The TV Set, which is another movie that he wrote and directed that's not based on original IP, that's sort of a dark comedy. It's set in the world of, of Hollywood and pitching shows. And I, I really actually dislike that movie quite a bit, but it also has a cult following. Um, at the same time, I think it was also not a hit. So maybe he just, doesn't have the chance or doesn't want to devote his time to making one of these original projects in the midst of blockbusters. I, I'm not sure why, but I, I think that's, that's a big, a big part of it that Jake Kasdan is not some a renowned auteur that people are seeking out his original work. No, he's, uh, I'm just looking at, and I actually have seen the TV set. Uh, I can't remember for the life of me. Was, I guess, I'm guessing it was pretty forgettable, but 
you know, Orange County, um, Walk Hard, Bad Teachers, Sex Tape, and then the two big Jumanji movies. Yeah, Zero Effect is is the outlier here, you know, being the feature film debut. And I think that if you're looking for the kind of humor that's in something like Walk Hard, Bad Teacher, and Sex Tape in, in Orange County, you're not going to find it in Zero Effect. It's less... Um, those movies are much more broad, a little, you know, raunchier, obviously, um, and kind of, uh, you know, some people like that kind of humor. To, but to me, I gravitate more towards this very dry, even the goofy setup. I mean, it's one, of, it's such a goofy scene where they're, they're um, Bill Pullman and Ben Stiller are talking to each other on the phone, and it turns out they're like three phones away in a bank. Um, and it's a slow reveal to show them like a, a couple feet away from each other. Uh, it's kind of dumb, but at the same time, I think it's 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 very funny. Um, whereas some of the some of the um, the humor that's used in a movie like Bad Teacher with um, gosh, what's her name? Cameron Diaz. Thank you. And uh, Sex Tape, also I think with Cameron Diaz and uh, Jason Segel. Um, it, it, it's much more on the nose. It's very raunchy. You don't really have to think about it. The punchlines are going to be kind of gross out body, you know, body fluids and all that kind of stuff. But um, he also did, he worked also in television um, with Judd Apatow. He worked, he did some work as a director and producer on Freaks and Geeks and also on Undeclared, which are, are two big cult TV shows that uh, Judd Apatow was uh, was working on before he kind of uh, made the leap into to feature films. But, yeah, speaking of, uh, before we start wrapping this up, two, two quick points that I wanted to mention about this movie. Um, first of all, the score. And not only the score, but um, the score is done by the Grey Boy All-Stars, I believe who I know have done some, uh, I've seen them do some production work and some remix work, but the score in this movie is excellent. And also the choice of movie, uh, choice of songs for the soundtrack is, uh, is quite, quite well uh, put together. Um, some interesting stuff. Um, plus, if you, if you got some Nick Cave in there, I'm kind of on board. And uh, he, he, the, uh, the song Into My Arms, which is done which is a beautiful song. And, you know, some people have a, an issue with Nick Cave uh, because of his voice and they don't, you know, they don't, he doesn't really sing in key or he's singing off key, whatever. It's, it's, it's great, great stuff. And it's a beautiful song. And it's, it's perfectly set in this movie and a very, um, you know, emotional uh, scene with uh, Daryl Zero and, and, and the love interest. And plus you got some Elvis Costello in there. Um, so lots of good stuff and the great boy all-stars. I mean, the, the soundtrack to me is just, is kick-ass and, um, I'm a sucker for a really, really good soundtrack. What, uh, what say you about the, uh, the music here? Yeah, I have to admit to be, being one of those Nick Cave, uh, detractors. It's just, okay. I'm That's not, a, I'm not a fan, but, but I mean, the, the song works well in the movie. Absolutely. Sure. Um, I'm not going to sit down and listen to a Nick Cave album, but, um, you know, the, the placement of it and the, the way that it's used in this film, I think is good. And yeah, the soundtrack or the score rather is, is quite good. And it's the, those, uh, the, the band, I guess you would call them or collective or whatever, the, the great boy all-stars. Um, I mean, they're not like, uh, very prolific film composers. In fact, I mean, just if I look at Wikipedia it, it seems like uh, this is perhaps the only film that they were the uh, credited as doing the score for. So I don't know how that ended up happening and how Jake Kasdan connected with them, but it is another unconventional aspect of the film that that I like. Um, but yeah, I can't I can't get on board with the Nick Cave fandom. Unfortunately. Yeah, completely understandable. I, I'm, the same way, I think it, it took me a while. Um, but I really gravitated towards the. He, he writes some absolutely beautiful lyrics. Um, and I have the same issues with, you know, someone like uh, I have issues trying to get on board with Tom Waits as much as I want to. Um, I, 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 you know, maybe because I'm more of a, a film fan than I am a music fan nowadays. I, I like I'm much more uh, keen to watch a Tom Waits 
movie than I am to listen to a Tom Waits album. Um, but, you know, yeah, the, the soundtrack, it doesn't surprise me that they're not very prolific. They're kind of, you know, underground indie kind of things. It wouldn't surprise me if he was a fan of their work and um, was like, you know, why not? Let's give him a shot. And, um, and again, this movie didn't really set the world on fire, so they never really got the, um, the compo- you know, t- to score films like a group like Tangerine Dream got the opportunity to do in the 80s or, you know, Tim Burton, you know, Tim Burton kind of rediscovered Danny Elfman, who is, uh, you know, famous for being an Oingo Boingo, but, you know, completely, ab- well, didn't completely abandon, but basically abandoned uh, all that kind of stuff um, um, to, to film, uh, to score films. So, I mean, we'll never know because we don't live in a world where Zero Effect was was ultimately uh, uber successful. But um, my last point before I let you go and we'll wrap up this episode is um, this is a movie uh, that, it, you know, it did have enough buzz and recognition. At some point, they were thinking of developing this into a TV show. Um, but on the one hand, I'm disappointed that never happened, but I'm glad it didn't because it was kind of it seemed to me that it was developed for abc television and it was going to be shown on on abc and i don't know that if you could really kind of tone down um the 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 humor and bring it down to a level level acceptable for television that being said i would love to see more of um more of the zero effect universe expanded at some point in time um now is that something like you said you, you don't generally go go back and watch or rewatch a movie but uh, it seems to me i'm going to i'm going to take a guess that if there was a, a zero effect t- 2 announced with the the same cast and um uh, Mr. Kasdan on board doing the writing and directing. Uh, I, I'm guessing that you you would be uh, you you would uh, shell out a couple bucks to see this at the uh, the multiplex or see it for free as a film critic. Yeah, of course, I'd be happy to see uh, a sequel to this. I mean, I, I agree with you. Watching this movie, it made me think that it was a shame that we didn't get a whole series of Daryl Zero films, which I'm sure was something that Jake Kasdan was hoping for at the time that he made this movie. You know, again, I go back to Confess Fletch from last year, which had sort of the same fate that it didn't set the world on fire. It was a critical darling, but didn't really find a huge audience. And it's a shame to think that there won't be a chance to see more adventures of that character and more uh, mysteries for him to solve. So yeah, I I totally would be interested in seeing another Zero Effect film. And I'd be curious to see, because that that TV series didn't get picked up, but they did make the pilot, it sounds like, uh, starring Alan Cumming as Daryl Zero. And I don't know, uh, pilots that were never aired, sometimes you can find them online, but not always. I don't know if it's uh, posted somewhere on YouTube or something like that. I'd be curious to see it, even if it is a failure, just just out of, out of curiosity to see how they handled it all. And like you said, toned it down for broadcast television versus the, the R-rated, very dark at times film. So... Yeah, I, it doesn't seem like this is something that Jake Kasdan is pursuing or that it's really the phase that he's at in his career. But if the chance came up for that to happen, I would love uh, to check that out. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, this is um, this is high on my list of, of movies that 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 I would like to see more of. Um, and I don't say that very often because sometimes, you know, if you uh, one sequel is good and then they push it too too far and then like you're you know like enough enough of this you know i i've gotten my fill uh but this is this is high on my list of, on stuff that i i really would that doesn't have anything other than the pilot you know there isn't any i'd like to see the very first case of um daryl zero or the first meeting of him and ben stiller's character you know um there's just so much to explore and um but i i that being said I, you know, nothing has been said of the future of what's going to happen, but all these, all these main players are, are, are still around and still active. So there is, there's always a chance, right? Never say never. Who, who would have thought, um, you know, when Blade Runner 2049 was released, you know, like who thought we were going to get a sequel to Blade Runner decades after the original? 
Um, so I guess it's a never say never kind of a uh, um, thing, but you know, I'm gonna be uh, I'm gonna be realistic and say I, I I don't think it's going to happen as much as I would love it to, but you know, yeah, it seems unlikely. But um, like you said, maybe it would ruin it too. That's always possible. We'd get excited and it would just be, they couldn't recapture the magic and then it would be disappointing that they bothered to try. Right. I'm almost kind of hesitant to, to see the pilot now um, because, you know, I, I, I like Alan Cumming, but I don't know if he could pull off, pull it off, but we'll see. Um, any final thoughts here on the um, zero effect before I let you go? Yeah, I mean the one one thing that I I wanted to to highlight that we haven't talked about as much. I mean, we mentioned Kim Dickens and, and her character, but I just want to give a shout out to her cuz I think she's a great and really underrated actor and she's really good in this movie in a part that could be difficult because it's sort of the love interest, it's the suspect is a character who could be a little one-dimensional or is just secondary to the main male character or exists to reflect his development or his emotions. But she really gives a very strong and nuanced performance that that gets you emotionally invested in that character too, especially as we learn more about her background and sort of the tragic circumstances of her life. So I think in general, she's just an underrated actress. I always enjoy seeing her. She does a lot of TV. I She was great on Friday Night Lights and uh, Treme the uh, David Simon HBO series and has done a million other things. But that's the one other thing that I would love to highlight about this movie. I think as great as Ben Stiller and Bill Pullman are, she's really good as well. She is. She's excellent. I think that the whole cast really is, is, is very, they're given very, they're given a very smart script. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if, if he allowed some improv here and there, um, given the, the, the talent of the cast that he has. Um, before I let you go, Josh, what what season, what year are you guys covering on your show this time around? Well, we are. Uh, I believe we still will be when this is released in the midst of our season on the films of 2012. And that is actually the most recent year that we have yet to cover. So, like I said, we, we range all around film history and uh, I am the one always trying to push us further back. And so we had just finished our season on 1953, which was the furthest back that we went. And so Jason Harris, my co-host, is uh, sort of the opposite and is always trying to get us to talk about more recent films, which I, I think is fair because that's going to maybe garner a bit more listener interest. So we balanced out our old, se- uh, you know, the season looking the furthest back with the season looking at uh, the most recent year. So uh, we are busy talking about the films of, of 2012. And, and there's a whole interesting range of films there, uh, cult films, huge blockbuster films, uh, foreign films, as we always try to do to, to capture a snapshot of the year with a lot of different kinds of movies. So if you check us out, again, awesome movie year, wherever you listen to podcasts, awesomemovieyear.com. Uh, check us out on social media, Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter and Awesome Movie Year on Facebook and Instagram. We're always looking for feedback. Uh, you know, what what are people's favorites from the years that we talk about? And we, you know, we'll do bonus episodes sometimes on films that a lot of listeners are interested in hearing about. So uh, give us a listen. Excellent. Josh, I can't thank you enough for coming on to the show. Hopefully that I can have you on again in the future um, to cover something Um, And I want to just thank all of you for tuning in and listening to another episode of the Cult Film Companion Podcast. If you haven't seen Zero Effect, um, there's really not, but we didn't spoil all that much because it's actually the characters and the actors that really pull this movie together more so than the mystery itself. So give it a watch if you haven't and uh, give it a rewatch if you can find it. Um, It is out there. You just got to dig a little bit deeper for it. But I just want to thank my thank uh, thank my guest once again. All his information about him and his show are going to be in the episode description. So please give him a follow on Twitter. Uh, show him some love. Check out his show. And um, uh, thanks again for tuning in. <laughs>